from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. This is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly. Juneteenth is a federal holiday in the U.S. commemorating the emancipation of enslaved African Americans. We sit down with the president of the Philadelphia Juneteenth family and the executive director of Johnson House Historic Site in Germantown to dig into some history. This holiday is not just for black folks, it's for all folks who have felt that they're enslaved at any level. We continue to celebrate pride with our newsmaker this week, a Philly poet and author who advocates for people of color and the LGBTQ community. And Jeanette Lee has our Philly Rising Changemaker this week as we recognize fathers this weekend. It's a half hour you don't want to miss, and it's all coming up on Bridging Philly. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly. Juneteenth is a federal holiday in the United States commemorating emancipation of enslaved African Americans. It commemorates when Union soldiers brought the news of freedom to the enslaved in Galveston, Texas, back in 1865. Now, mind you, this was about two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation freed them in southern states. Philadelphia had lots of activities uh, for the week and also into this weekend. So we want to dive into the true meaning of having this day as a federal holiday and make sure that everyone knows exactly what Juneteenth is all about. Joining me today is Tamara Staley. She is president of the Philadelphia Juneteenth family. And also with us is Cornelia Swinson. She is executive director of the Johnson House Historic Site in Germantown. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having us this morning. Awesome. And we are coming together for a wonderful event, a wonderful holiday, and a wonderful weekend. So I'm glad to have you both. Let's talk about the history of Juneteenth. And, you know, what I really would like to do, and and either one can jump in, I want to flash back to what exactly was going on during the time um, when uh, people have to understand that two and a half years took place uh, after the Emancipation Proclamation. And this is one of the reasons why we really celebrate, because, you know, two and a half years after we had so many enslaved not knowing that they were actually free. Let's talk about what was going on during that time, Tamara, if you can get into the history a little bit. In my opinion, and this is just my opinion, the Emancipation Proclamation uh, was a document, mm-hmm. and the document was meant to be to free the people. But Lincoln really had a, I wouldn't say a hidden agenda, but what it did do, the it, it gave Black men the ability to go to the Navy and the Army. Because when there were people, even when Colonel Granger went to Galveston to tell the folks, you are now free, there were still people still being enslaved in the Southern states. And as we know, people were enslaved long after um, the Emancipation Proclamation. But the fact that Juneteenth was on the 19th by order of the president at the time and Colonel Granger delivered the information to the folks, they just jumped up and down. They were excited to be free and they celebrated with what we would call a festival and their food for the day was uh, strawberry soda and red velvet cake which a lot of people don't know that. So, Cornelia, I, I, you know, pass the baton to you to continue Mm -hmm. on that story. Lincoln, 
established the proclamation in September of 1862. Mm -hmm. It became um, uh, effective in 1863. So there for the connection between how long uh, between that time and the time that those who were in Texas learned that they had been free about approximately two and a half years before that. Right. So to Mary's right, the celebration was joyous. And one of the reasons why uh, strawberry uh, soda and, and red velvet, or well, red cake, red velvet cake, we would call it today, was feasted upon was because as enslaved African-Americans, we were not allowed to have that. This was an opportunity to um, indulge in what you couldn't have, do things that you couldn't do before, um, go places that you weren't allowed to go, you were trying to do. This is what I would call a gradual movement to embrace slavery, not because they didn't want to, but because they were mindful of the environment. Right, right, right. And it became a crusade. Yeah. Um, you know, once that announcement was made, it, it became a crusade to be against slavery. You know, if I can, I, I want to share a little bit um, of quotes actually from history of Please what do. some people experience and said, uh, because we often have a romanticized understanding of what happened. So, and this is quoted, those who acted on the news did so at their peril. As quoted in Litwack's book, former slave Susan Merritt recalled, quote, you could see lots of blacks hanging to trees in Sabine, bottom right after freedom, because they catch them swimming cross Savon River and shoot them. In one extreme case, according to Hayes Turner, a former slave named Katie Darling continued working for her mistress another six years. Wow. She whipped me out of the war list, just like she did for, Darling said. So we can use that word freedom pretty loosely, especially uh, during that particular time. Mm -hmm, As you were talking mm -hmm. about everybody celebrating and doing things that they weren't able to do, I was going to say that's just about everything. But it yeah. probably was difficult to do during that time because, you know, you're free, but you're not really free, so to speak. Right, right, right. Because you're not looked at as equal. That was a sobering, sobering uh, quotes there. Let's talk to this significance of this finally being um, a holiday. What, what does that mean to both of you that this is a holiday in the United States? We had our first documented celebration of Juneteenth in 1998 here in Johnson House. The board of directors put on a one-day program. Um, our senator at that time was Senator Alton Schwartz. She funded it. And we have had a Juneteenth celebration in various forms ever since that year. Um, and so what it means for Johnson House is this is an opportunity to make the connection between our history and the issues that impacted African-Americans who were enslaved during the um, civil, um, as a result of the Civil War, were now free, mm -hmm. was an opportunity to highlight what was going on before that. This is a house that's an underground railroad station. And so the Johnsons were abolitionists and they work with abolitionists. They work with abolitionists who were Quaker, so white, black, both enslaved and free. And that's not all they did because, you know, you can do something and you, you can say you're, you are for something and you can give money to it, but they risk their lives. So documented in our history is the many causes that they worked on. They were on the board of managers for this 
uh, they were part of what started Shane University, what was then known as the Institute of Colored Youth, um, because they were abolitionists. Mm -hmm. um, one of the Johnson's family was downtown, so he knew all those people. They were friends with William Still, Lucretia Mott, uh, all of the abolitionists, white and black, who were active. And this house was a place where enslaved Africans were given our protection. And I, I, I could go on and on, but that's the reason why we celebrate it, because we recognize that there is not much difference, though we've made some progress, but not much difference in the issues that were impacting our community. And that's for African-Americans in particular, but whites too, because it is about the equation of black and white and who's free and who's not. Right. So that's the reason why we celebrate it and do what we do. And we created a center for social advocacy based on that history. And that has been in existence for at least uh, five years. And every year during Juneteenth, we focus on a social issue that impacts the community. And so this one this year is housing inequity, because we know there are many people who are homeless, who are facing generational wealth issues in their community and their family. And that's what our panel discussion is about this year. Tamara, um, tell me about the formation of the Philadelphia Juneteenth family. When did this form and what's it all about? The Juneteenth family really has a history of um, going back to, I think, 2017, but not the Juneteenth family. It was under another name, under the direction of Kenny Gamble and uh, a few other people in South Philly, uh, formed a committee under the community of leaders. And then we were brought to the table to say, Let's do this in a larger, in a bigger way, a grand way. At the time, I was recruited along with my executive producer to host a parade. We hosted the largest parade, African-American parade, downtown Philadelphia in 2018. Actually, and then we had receptions the night before, plus a festival on Penn's Landing. And each of these events, the, the parade attracted 25,000 people, and the festival uh, attracted another 10,000 people. So it was just a wonderful experience in getting that off the ground. But in the meantime, there were some cultural differences, and the group more or less um, split. They wanted to bring it to the neighborhood, so we decided to uh, step aside and uh, let them do what they wanted to do for the neighborhood, And because our philosophy is Juneteenth is not just a one-day event. Juneteenth okay. needs to be 365 days a year. Mm -hmm. It should be in the education system. And, uh, you know, our, our motto is one people, one cause, one destiny. So until we learn and teach the stories that other folks have tried to teach mm -hmm. on behalf of our culture and history, it's time for us to do it for ourselves. That's something I wanted to talk with both of you about as far as the history of Juneteenth and the schools and kids coming up learning about it, um, how important it is for them to understand this important piece of history and have it taught properly and not watered down like Cornelia, the, like what you were just telling us, you know, people were celebrating, but celebrating wasn't very easy to do, even though you know, we still do it today, even in the face of adversity, we will still find a way to to celebrate each other. Talk about the the importance of children learning and and understanding the true meaning and the history of Juneteenth. 
Uh, we have a lot of experience with that at Johnson House. We are part of um, historic Germantown, and that's a collaboration of 18 historic and cultural sites. Um, and there's a program called History Hunters Youth Reporter Program. It was approved by the school district and, and, and it, it meets the state's core standards for education. It's for fourth and fifth graders. We have a, a, a curriculum. The program is paid for. Pre-pandemic, uh, students came at, uh, to Johnson House and they learned about the history of Johnson House. And we are proud to say that every year when we were implementing the program, teachers brought their fourth and fifth graders to Johnson House. So between January and, and mid-May, we saw 4,600 in 2019. We pivoted and created a virtual History Hunters program. So we were able to serve those students and their teachers. So education is important. We have to start from the ground up. And um, being a, a Black woman, and our board is uh, prominently African-American, we look at that book and we're always constantly revising it and pushing. So, you know, language is important. So instead of calling um, those who are escaping slavery freedom seekers, well, anybody is a freedom seeker. If you come from Europe and you don't like the religion there and you are coming over here, you're seeking the freedom to practice your religion. Mm -hmm. But we are talking about people who were held in bondage. Right. So we say that language should be enslaved Africans. And we've done that for a long time. Mm -hmm. So education is important. And we focus a lot of our time on that with young people as well as adults. And Tamara, uh, with the Juneteenth family, I'm assuming that the kids are involved with a lot of the events that you plan as well, correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we have partnered with YMCA for the second year to do a program for the inner city kids who go to camp for two weeks. And we put together a Juneteenth griot to show the children basically the, the history of Juneteenth at their level of understanding. And we hope to upgrade that at some point in time with a professional griot. But we, we realize that we must reach this level of kids because if we don't get them between 11, 12, and 15, we've lost the generation. And, and I'm sure that we can see what's happening to that younger generation now. And I think also that the parents, Juneteenth teaching needs to start at home. You know, when I came along, um, my folks are from that generation where history was very important because I'm a Southern girl from North Carolina. All so, right. <laughs> <laughs> so those old country values that we have were instilled from our parents. And yes. you sat around the fire and you, you knew about watch night. And people don't talk about watch night. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, and uh, they don't understand what watch night was. And, you know, but our folks actually taught us as best that they could because they came from a generation wherein they were not allowed X, Y, and Z, you know? So it's important to reach out to the masses. And it's not just for Black folks. It's for all folks. Is, is the grandmother of uh, Opal Lee uh, made it in a statement. She said, this holiday is not just for Black folks. It's for all folks who have felt that they're enslaved at any level. And as, as we can see, you know, a lot of that is still going on. So there's, there's a lot to this word called freedom. Absolutely. And uh, it is a, an important piece of American history mm -hmm. as well. 
Cornelia, uh, should people incorporate a visit to the Johnson House as part of their Juneteenth uh, festivities and celebrations? Well, we've had experience with that. We usually have so many people participate in Juneteenth. You know, we're a house, so you can't have 100 people at a time coming in to tour. Right. So when we have had tours, we've had to uh, limit the number. And if you limit the number and you give a great tour, that means that you might have 15 people, 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of patience for that. Um, We've had lines standing out. It hasn't really worked well, but I would love for them to be able to do that. And this year, the Harriet Tubman exhibit that was installed at City Hall celebrating her 200th birthday has transitioned to Johnson House, and it has been installed at Johnson House. Oh, okay. And so we definitely are not allowing a lot of people to come in because we're up and close, and it has to be monitored, and the quilts um, really shouldn't be touched by people. And they're the kind that want you to touch, so it takes close monitoring. But we have the whole block. It's a long block. Uh, We have lawns up in this block, and so we're able to do a whole lot. And, And we extend... A block beyond this this um, Johnson House and a block below. So our panel discussion as, is at a historic Mennonite church. And Clifton is in the 6400 block. It was a place where enslaved people were held because the Jews did have plantations. But that's a part of telling the whole story. Enslavement wasn't about Black people trying to find their freedom. It was about those who were enslaving them. So that 365 circle story is important for people to learn. Doesn't mean that it should hold you back, but it should at least have you think about what role did my family play, what role did my community play, and what could I do to make it better today? You know, I wanted to talk with both of you um, about this. And a lot of people I know in my circles, we, we've we been talking about this. And, you know, we're, this is America and America loves to capitalize, of course. Um, so Juneteenth is no different. We've seen the Juneteenth ice cream. We've seen the <laughs> Juneteenth products. Uh, we've seen some things that are a little offensive. And we kind of wonder how it got to the shelf. What's your opinion on the commercialization of Juneteenth? I'm I'm assuming that there is a fine line and a happy medium somewhere as long as things are done tastefully. Well, Tamara and I both um, have opinions about it. And and I think that um, it puts us, it takes us to a place where I'm offended. We always say that, you know, Black history is American history, and it is happening every day. Um, So if it is, why use this as an opportunity to make more money when you haven't addressed the issues that, you know, people of color are suffering from economically? This should not be a place for you to use your weight as corporate America to make more money and do nothing about what goes on inside your corporation. I know we're a small museum. We like to employ people um, from this community, black and white. Juneteenth is a time for us to employ people, uh, small businesses to make money. We have 90 vendor tables at our event this year. So I'm offended. We have to work harder. It just tells us we have to work harder. We have to speak up and say what we need to say and say that's not acceptable. Tamara, what do you think? Well, I am offended about some of the products, but it's typical American. Some things that we we cannot stop the ball from rolling. 
what what I would have liked to see is let's just take the ice cream situation. There are talented African Americans or black and brown people who have skills in Afrocentric products. Mm-hmm. It seems like to me that corporations who wanted to sell on the backs of our people would have reached out to those groups of people and say, how can we establish a partnership rather than let those people just run rapid in selling our product and not understanding um, the values of what, why we commemorate uh, Juneteenth. And it's, it's just, it's very sad. How do we correct it? I don't know at this particular time, but I think that a lot of noise has been made through the African-American community. I hope that there will be change in the future. Right. And um, that, you know, in my research and doing some things, I know that the new buzzword is diversity uh, officers. Mm-hmm. Every yes. company now has a diversity I said, oh, was that a course of study in college? Well, I missed that, but you know what I mean? <laughs> no, but you can go get a certificate and be certified in diversity. diversity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, corporations are hiring diversity officers. So I think that the corporations should look, take a deep dive and look at how can they partner with certain people in the African-American community that are doing things to not only educate and strengthen the history and culture of our people. Absolutely. Tell me about some of the events uh, that have taken place for Juneteenth. Well, our Juneteenth uh, celebration is going to be on Saturday. It's always been on Saturday. Since Juneteenth has been made an official holiday in 2019, and we went into pandemic mode in early 2020, um, so this is sort of new in terms of being able to choose the day that we have it. And um, so 2020 um, started a new trend, Uh, but now we're coming out of it and Juneteenth will be celebrated this year as a holiday for the state and the country. So that's a three-day weekend. But, you know, here's how I feel about this. And I do know this. People think that Juneteenth was the day, June 19th was the only day, but people celebrated so many other days and there were formal programs and informal programs. So we can do it on the 18th, the 19th, the 20th, and in September. Exactly. December. (laughs) Exactly. As Tamara said, 365. Yeah, 365. Right, right. And and I know the Philadelphia Juneteenth family had lots of things going on all week long and you're probably already starting to look at next year, um, right? Is that true? Well, we we did the flag raising, and let me give you a little history on the flag raising. As a member of the national organization, I tried to adhere to some of their rules and regs and requests. And they, you know, sent a request out to all of the states to raise your flags at noon or in that proximity of time on the first Monday in uh, June. So that is the beginning of Juneteenth, and Juneteenth can be celebrated uh, the entire month of June, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, activities. And across the country, that's what's happening. They're not, you know, focusing on just the 19th. And uh, now that the 19th has Father's Day, which is a bit, even a bigger boost, and the first Father's Day was in 1910, I believe I read it somewhere, uh, 
and they celebrated Juneteenth and Father's Day uh, together. So I know that the ministerial um, flock has uh, got a lot to say, and they're going to be incorporating that into their sermons on the 19th and celebrating the, both the Father's and uh, Juneteenth. But uh, we have an affair that's coming up. Like I said, we're going to be with the uh, children, with the Riyadh, and then we're going to have an affair on this Friday, which I invite everybody to come to at the Art Museum. Uh, it's at Jazz um, um, for a, re a reception there. And once again, for them to open the door, crack the door, and allow us to come and have an event is a big thing because in my mind, moving forward, I would like to see somebody of bigger influence to be at the Philadelphia Art Museum, for example, bring in the Lincoln Choir, you know. <laughs> and um, so we're into a lot of promoting the cultures and the cross, and even in this music that we're going to have, even though it says jazz, the um, songstress will be singing several genres of music because we want to continue to educate the talents in the cross-cultural music that ties into uh, Black Music Month. And we've actually put a name on this. We call it June B. June B. So we have we we have a whole plethora of things mm -hmm. that we want to accomplish in 2023. Um, that's going to be related to June B. Because mm -hmm. we should own again the month of June. Understand. Well, it seems like uh, Juneteenth celebrations, commemorations, and uh, festivities are getting better and better year after year. So I want to thank you, Tamara Staley, president of the Philadelphia Juneteenth family, and Cornelia Swenson, executive director of the Johnson House Historic Site in Germantown. Happy Juneteenth, and thanks for joining us on Bridging Philly. All things Juneteenth. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. Sharaday Howard brings us this week's newsmaker. Philly native Nikki Powerhouse is a creative force that speaks to the best of the human spirit. A poet, a playwright, and an activist. She's the director of I Am Powerhouse LLC, providing art-based performances, workshops, and not to mention, she's a motivational speaker. In 2018, Nikki received the Leeway Foundation Art and Change Grant for her one-woman show, The Art of I Am. And next, she's releasing a new book of her poetry entitled The Softest Part of Her is Everything. Because Nikki believes art should engage and transform the creator as well as the audience. So we had a point-to-point -point conversation on her stoop in West Philly to talk everything Juneteenth and Philly poetry. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Nikki. Thank you so much for having me. Nikki Powerhouse, how would you describe what you do? I would say it is, it's an exchange of energy. I'm very present to who I am and what my gift is. Embodying responsibility, I'm giving the abundance, the infinite, the, the joy, the peace. So all the energy, even in difficult, the pain, I think that in order for me to help people move through their discomfort, they have to see it. They have to see what that looks like and be able to hold both the pain and the power, the joy and the discomfort. So do you hold up a mirror or a magnifying glass? A mirror. 
Because the, the mirror, we are our reflection. And who I see in me, I see in my audience. It is the awakening to that which I've discovered within me that my work wants and desires to awake in them. So it's what they inspire from me is really the spark that's sparking in them. People of almost any and every background, they see something of themselves in you. Yes, yes. I think, you know, people, once I started to get more and more into my work, I speak to the human spirit. So let's talk about your work. I loved I Am, and I watched you cross the stage like your living room. It was your Philadelphia street. It was your life and you were sharing it openly. Why was that so important to you? It's the journey that I'm on and that we all are on. All of the journey is worth it. And who I am now is coupled with everything that has come before me. So describe I Am. The Art of I Am is this one woman stage play that I bravely, courageously open myself up to sharing the journey of how you get to a place of true wholeness, true authenticness, place of uh, creating the, the world that you see within yourself, that you see for yourself, and truly walking in that. What I've discovered with I Am beyond the performance is that I Am is a constant engagement with the self. So it's not just what you say about yourself, it's what you become. And in that becoming, you realize that you were that and more all along. So is that what people are connecting to when they watch you? That's exactly what they're connecting to. So, you know, when people say, oh my God, you almost made me cry, or you, you just bring so much out of me. There were times where I used to think, like, well, what do you mean almost made you cry? <laughs> like, if the tears is there, let them go. <laughs> but I realized that people are on their own process. and. Their break may have been the first ever. So for them, that's big. That's vulnerability's hard. Vulnerability is everything. It's the beauty of, of the vulnerability that I've discovered that it's what you think of yourself in how you feel. That sometimes we put ourselves even more deeper in the discomfort because we're thinking, we're judging it rather than allowing it. We're building it already. Yeah. So why be surprised when it shows up? Yeah. Most importantly, with the art of I am, what I have discovered is that self-discovery is a gift. And that when you do discover the things, the nuances in your life, you get to like see, see how dope you are. Let's get a little bit of this dopeness. Just give me a little bit, the part that speaks to what we were just talking about. In the beginning where time had no meaning, we were the sum of galaxies and God's breath. Infinity orbited the earth and created itself into an umbilical cord. So all of human life would embody her DNA. We are limitless. Now let's talk about that limitlessness. I see you and I see absolutely no limitations, no ceilings. As women of color, as LGBTQ folks, we got a lot of walls. We got a lot of ceilings and roofs. What does it take to push through that? pushing through it, it takes a choice and it takes work. And in the work, you remind yourself along it that you are deserving of it. 
I'm having a moment because it's, 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 it's a constant engagement with yourself. The world around us, whether it's family, friends, or otherwise, have along the journey have once or twice or many times marked us failures, and we believe them. When you start to reconnect back to the truth of who you are, it's not about to challenge them, but it's to challenge you to keep breathing that which you've discovered. Breathing that limitlessness, breathing that in everything that you do, and you get to give yourself the permission to have a vision bigger than circumstance, bigger than police brutality, bigger than all of it. Because in my process, I have embodied and allowed myself to hold the breaking and the breakthrough, knowing that I am awaiting myself on the other side. Yeah. We're in Juneteenth. We're in Pride Month. All the things that are oh. happening right now. And you've got stuff going on. Tell us what you got going on. And listen, listen. Um, Juneteenth, it's on Father's Day. In my book, The Softest Part of Hers, Everything, I have a poem dedicated for my father. Can you give us a little bit? Yes. I forgive you for all the times your absence felt like cutting knives and I created a story of not being good enough to be loved or protected. You may rest now. Daddy, I love you. And I did that because I think there's another layer to freedom, and that's forgiveness. And not only the forgiveness of the person that we are forgiving, but forgiving ourselves for creating the story. Letting that be a stepping stone. Being a stepping stone. And once I wrote that piece, it literally, like, I just really opened up to so many things. It freed you. It freed me in everything. Because I realized that it wasn't about just relationships or how I interacted with other people, but how I interacted with myself that kept me holding back and not sharing my gifts, not showing up, not creating fearful experience, things that would make me scared as hell, but I would do it anyway. I did a Doom Day uh, uh, this past Sunday, and it was the platform in which I found that it wasn't just my performance, it was beyond the performance. It was being on that stage and my spirit and that ancestor, that energy reminding me this is not just for the people you see, but it's also for the people you don't see. Because you're not going to see everybody. And the, that is good. That's okay. You let all that gift reach those 500,000 people in that area with the intention. And so being in that space just was just affirming spiritually, creatively, add like my family and my friends were there. Just like, you know, you haven't seen them in two years and this was huge because we haven't been together in two years. So it was really, really, really good. And I know that the gay pride parade, all the things that's happening and everything, but I was in my full body. I was, I was a bisexual woman at Odun Day, Black, spiritual, open, fluid, free, and the dress proved it. <laughs> you gotta show me this dress. <laughs> the dress proved it, honey. The dress was is was clear that she's here. She's here to slay. Yeah, she's here to slay, and no one can stop her. No one. And then yeah. Juneteenth shows. Ju Juneteenth come up, and then I'm like, oh, and it's on Father's Day. Oh, that's in the book. 
Oh, this is everything. Because that's another layer of freedom is the forgiveness. To connect it to our freedom. It's like forgiving and, and, and that being a part of it just, just because it's necessary. So embodying that forgiveness. I believe that what people see in me, I want them to see in themselves and see me as a mirror. There is no separation what I do and how I do it because, and sometimes, you know, I have a dance with my ancestors, with the spirit, and sometimes it's like, just let me be a vessel. If not all the time, I'm, I'm just a vessel. And more importantly, just be authentic to yourself. Be kind to yourself. You know, they say your gift will make room for you. Everything else is like a lotus flower, like it's blooming out of nowhere. And all I'm saying is yes. The softest part of her is everything. Tell me about your book. This is truly performance in words, meaning that The Art of I Am was a stage play. This is written in the book. And I discovered it during the pandemic. And I titled it The Softest Part of Her is Everything is because I've learned that every aspect of me my love, my sensuality, my sexuality, my pleasure, my desires, my, my joy, my peace. All of that is necessary for my day-to-day -day waking up and just doing it again and being excited and knowing. And it's really interesting when I tell people the title, you know, women are like, oh my God. And it's, you could feel it. And that was the intention is that that was my way of helping women, more importantly, to be able to feel their feelings deeply and authentically and honestly and without anything around it, but just being and in feeling their feelings, they live their authentic truth. Making it visceral makes it accessible. That, exactly. Because I think when people able to hold it. The intention is that the book, as they go through the journey, that they become the soft heart of themselves. And embrace it. And embrace it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yes. <laughs> At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devro Advanced Behavioral Health. I'm Antoinette Lee, here with the KYW Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Happy Father's Day weekend, y'all. This one is special because it overlaps with Juneteenth as well. So it's a big weekend here in Philly with many celebrations taking place. This week's Philly Rising Changemaker wears many hats, but today we're highlighting them for their role as president of a nonprofit that's been around for a while. It's called the Father's Day Rally Committee, and they make sure the issues and well-being of dads are on the forefront not just one day out of the year, but year round. Here's more. My name is Bilal Kayyum, president of the Father's Day Rally Committee. Thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly. Thank you for um, having me. 
Now, you do a lot around the city as it relates to gun violence prevention, activism, uh, but one organization that you're known for is the Father's Day Rally Committee. For those who aren't familiar with it, tell us what it is. Uh, Father's Day Rally Committee started uh, 32 years ago. Uh, it started where it was a group of African-American men that got together uh, very concerned about um, the images that were being portrayed in the media um, of Black men in particular. Um, and we had a long discussion at that meeting and decided to take action. Um, so we planned a rally, um, which happened, happened to be the Saturday before Father's Day. Um, that's where the name came from, the Father's Day Rally Committee. Um, and at that rally, we had over 300 men participating um, and we talked about the issues that were affecting black males back then. We're talking about 1990. Um, and from there, we, the organization evolved and we created um, programs that um, geared towards addressing concerns and, and, and promoting positive images of black males. Um, one of the first things we did was um, on Father's Day, we decided to host a picnic um, to promote fatherhood in the black community in particular. Um, and we held a picnic. And from that time, we held 30 picnics uh, every year on Father's Day. Uh, we ran uh, one of the first rites of passage programs in the city of Philadelphia for African-American males. Um, we did a program called Operation Footprint, where we would literally take 75 to 100 Black men of all walks, all professions, into high schools and do a program in the high school um, sharing and highlighting Black men in the city of Philadelphia, um, which I mentioned earlier about different professions. We had attorneys, we had doctors, we had laborers, um, we had folks who owned businesses, we had individuals who were coming out of prison, we had uh, drug recovery folks. So it was a whole spectrum of the population of Black males in the city of Philadelphia. Um, and then we also, before that, I should have said after we did the picnic, we got very much involved with the issue of trying to reduce violence in the black community. 1990, there was 501 murders, uh, 385 of them were black males, and literally nobody was saying anything about it. Because your listening audience has to remember, back then we didn't have tweet, we didn't have Facebook, we, we didn't have cell phones. I mean, the phones back, cell phones back then was those big, almost like box cell phones. Um, so we stood on a corner broad and broad, and we um, declared a state emergency in the city of Philadelphia uh, around violence. Um, from that, um, calling for the state emergency, we organized rallies, we did vigils, uh, we did uh, organized blocks and stuff to, to begin to address the issue about violence in the black community. And I can say without hesitation that 30 years ago, we were the one to really put uh, issue about violence in the black community on the front burner of the city of Philadelphia. Now it's interesting now, 30 years later, that same call is being made about state of emergency in the city of Philadelphia. Um, we also put, or I mean, was very instrumental uh, back then, promoting that violence was a health issue and that it had to be addressed that way, not in the criminal justice system, but in the health system. Um, so we've been in the forefront for many years trying to reduce violence. We've seen the numbers go down to 288, which is one of the lowest years in the city. And I can say this too, my understanding, we're one of the oldest still in existing fatherhood groups in the country. There's fatherhood groups in the country that have emerged over the years, but we were one of the first uh, in the country promoting fatherhood 
as a solution to a lot of ills in the African-American community. And you mentioned how the organization has evolved over the past 30 years or so. What are the major issues that you would say um, Black fathers are facing today and how is the organization addressing those challenges? First of all, we feel that having fathers involved in families, in the household with the children, is going to be a major solution to um, the issue about violence. And not only Philadelphia, but across the country. Philadelphia has um, recorded, studied, that is 400,000 Philadelphians in the criminal justice system. Um, most of those in the criminal justice system are black, and particularly black males. So all those black males involved in the criminal justice system have been taken out of households. So this is when we see this large number of single-headed households in the black community. Um, depends on when you talk to what's, what study you look at, 60, 65, percent of black households only have one parent in the household and and them are majority of them are mothers or are grandmothers or grandparents. So when you take that many black men out of families and the community, that's the impact, the negative impact we're seeing today, which has helped driving the violence. Our young males don't have the images. The young males don't have that nurturing from fathers that they need. Um, you know, a mom can only go but so far in raising a young male. Um, so the impact we see now is how we can get fathers more involved in the lives of the children. If they, even if they're not living in the household, we need to make that image of black fathers being involved in children's lives much more than what it is now. And our organization now, Fathers Day Rally Committee, is going to focus more as we move forward on how we can engage and get fathers involved in the children's lives. We know without that, the confidence is going to be what we're seeing now. And not only Philadelphia, but across the country. If you don't have men, because we got more black men across America in prison or involved, not only in prison, but you know, have been involved in the criminal justice system. So they got all kinds of issues about trying to find employment. And then that directly involved in the children's lives, we really see now why what's going on in, in the communities of, of color across the across the United States. And for those who are not familiar with your work or your background, why are you personally committed to this cause? I'm from the old school. I was raised in a community in West Philadelphia where everybody looked out for each other. Uh, back then in the you know the 50s and the 60s, the numbers I quoted before about not having fathers in the household, it was flipped. I experienced growing up how having a father and a mother in the household, how important it was for me and my brother uh, and the community to, to have a very strong nurturing community. And, and people love the, you know, people support each other. So I'm a big believer that I grew up in that environment. I know how it helped me, even when I did things I wasn't supposed to do. So I know the importance of having a mom and a pop in the house, how important that is for the nurturing of, of, of the family and the community. Families come first. So when you have strong families and their, their culture, our culture, then you see uh, these numbers as far as violence, not at nowhere near the numbers of violence we've seen in America. I understand how important having a family where there's both mom and pop in it and how that influence helps that child uh, to become a strong, nurturing individual. Now, this Father's Day is overlapping with Juneteenth. I'm wondering, how is your organization commemorating? And two, if you see that as 
taking away from Father's Day in any way, or maybe even taking away from Juneteenth, or if you've decided to just embrace this overlap? I think it's worked very well together. You can't take away Father's Day, particularly around the Juneteenth, because Juneteenth is also, folks have to remember, it's promoting our culture. You know, we're joining together our celebration of Father's Day, promoting fatherhood in the Black community, but fatherhood in general, but also Juneteenth celebrating part of our culture as a people. Juneteenth celebration, um, to me, is really, uh, it's a good joint celebration. We support the Juneteenth activities on Sunday. We're working with the, uh, the group that is organized in the Juneteenth Parade, which would be on 52nd Street. So tell us about some of the events that you do have going on this week to commemorate both Father's Day and Juneteenth. Tuesday, we had a photo shoot on the steps of the art museum. We had around 15 fathers showed up. We took a picture of their fathers. We're having our 25th annual fatherhood awards reception, where we honor 10 fathers taking care of their children, being very much involved in the children's lives. Some of them are very, very well known. Councilman Kenai Johnson, who has two sons. We have a brother named uh, Reuben Jones. He's very, very much involved in the ex-offender community, very much involved in getting men and fathers involved doing positive things in the community. Deputy Commissioner, Police Commissioner Joel Dales. We're ironing eight other fathers. There's a group in the city called Grands for Parents, um, which are grandparents that take care of their children because of, you know, the, the mothers or the fathers are not you know, there. And we got an award that we're going to give to a grandfather for his involvement in, in raising, help raising his grandchildren. We do this every year. For the last 25, it's like 10 fathers we honor. So that's like over 250, 300 fathers we honored over the years. We always got to promote the positive in our community. I mean, we're, we're being bombarded with negatives. So our, once again, one of our key mission points is to promote the positive activities in the Black community, uh, particularly with fathers. And, and we're doing that. We are involved with... Um, Juneteenth Coalition who's putting on the parade Sunday that will be going down 52nd Street and we're promoting that as well as activities we're doing for the Fathers Father's Day weekend. Part of being fathers too is knowing and understanding our culture and promoting that. Uh, a lot of our young folks unfortunately don't get that. They don't get it in the education system and they don't necessarily get it at home. How important it about being Black, knowing your your culture, knowing our, our rich history in this country, um, celebrating our heroes over the years. The more they we could teach that to them, um, that's going to be a major uh, help in, in resolving a lot of issues, particularly I know around the violence stuff. When you talk to young folks, some of these young folks, they heard of Dr. King, they couldn't tell you a story about Dr. King. They know about Malcolm X. Um, they never heard of Marcus Garvey. They never heard of Fannie Lou Hamer. You know, they haven't heard of these individuals. But so teaching our young folks the history, once you understand where you come from and you understand yourself, you develop self-love. Once you have self-love, you're most likely not to get involved with trying to destroy a life of your brother and sister. We have a rich culture. We have accomplished a lot. Um, you know, we always hear about the negative stuff, but who would have thought that we would live to see a Black president? If we in the city of Philadelphia now, we have a 17-member city council. Ten of those members are Black folks. We have had three Black mayors. I mean, we have had a lot of accomplishments. And even in the city of Philadelphia, even though there's, you know, a lot of talking about 
what the black community is doing or what the black community is not doing. You know, we got to look at all the accomplishments we have. In the level of, in the 70s, we were averaging 70 murders per year, 70 to 90 murders per year of young folks with gangs. 1979, there was zero, zero gang murders in the city of Philadelphia because the black community took ownership, we organized, and we got out there and we reduced the violence. We didn't have black elected officials. You just heard me mention we got 10 black city council folks there. Those are major accomplishments we have, we have done in the city of Philadelphia. Once, once the black community collectively works together and takes ownership of those issues and does everything in its power to, to resolve those, um, how to deal with those issues. So I'm very op I'm one of those people very optimistic about our future because I know what we've done in the past. So I know that we can overcome even these shootings and stuff now. It's going to be very hard. We're not going to eliminate homicides, as everybody knows. But can we bring the numbers down like we did back in 2005 where it's 288 or lower? I think we can, but it's going to be a lot of work. It's going to take time. There's no silver bullet in resolving the issues we're in now. It's going to be, a, a, it's got to be a, a, a moving all at the same time, five or six, seven um, issues we got to deal with at the same time, but we can do it. Uh, you know, it's got to be a constant, very comprehensive plan addressing families, addressing fathers' involvement, addressing supporting mothers who need support, who are really doing a great job, who are raising their children without maybe a father involved, um, employment opportunities, building black business is going to be very important. So more black businesses we have, the more uh, employment opportunities we give for the black community, like any other ethnic group is doing. So all that work's got to be done at the same time, working together. We got a lot of work to do, as you said. And so your organization, you do things all year round, not just the weekend. So how can people stay connected um, and learn more about the organization? They could call our number, which is 215-667-9870, or they can email us at fdrc2022 at gmail.com. And are you all active on social media? I know that's how I see things sometimes. Yeah, yeah, we have we have set up our, our Facebook page is Father the Day Rally Committee. Instagram, we're F F D R C under slash Inc. I N C. Well, thank you thank so you. much for your time. Thank you so thank much you for, for your... um, having me on. I keep up the great work that you're doing. Yes, thank you so much. That's it for this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. If you know someone making a difference in your community, no matter how large or seemingly small, reach out to me. I would love to chat with them and bring them on the show. You can submit your Changemaker ideas at kywnewsradio.com slash Philly Rising or find me on Twitter at AR Lee on Air. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And of course, subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shara Day Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.